Friends, human nature and human societies run on the idea of retribution. An eye for an eye, if you hurt me, then I'll hurt you. But all of history shows us that fighting fire with fire leaves the whole world burned. The alternative is the nonviolent kingdom of God, where we follow in the way of Jesus in loving our enemies. Throughout this season of Lent, we have learned Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s six principles of nonviolence and also explored Jesus' parables of God's nonviolent kingdom in the Gospel of Matthew. We are trying to learn how to be nonviolent people, to be saved from our instinct for violence. This way of life challenges our egos as we are confronted with the idea that the world really could change, but only if we are willing to release some of our comfort, our safety, and our power. The first of Dr. King's principles is that nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. It is active, nonviolent resistance to evil. The second principle is that nonviolence seeks to win friendship and understanding. The end result of nonviolence is redemption and reconciliation with the enemy. The third principle is that nonviolence seeks to defeat injustice, not people. Nonviolence recognizes that evildoers are also victims. The fourth principle is that nonviolence holds that suffering can educate and transform. Nonviolence willingly accepts the consequences to its acts. The fifth principle is nonviolence chooses love instead of hate. Nonviolence resists violence to the spirit as well as to the body. Nonviolent love is active, not passive. Nonviolent love does not sink to the level of the hater. Nonviolence restores community and resists injustice. Nonviolence recognizes the fact that all life is interrelated. And the sixth and final principle is that nonviolence believes that the universe is on the side of justice. The nonviolent resistor has deep faith that justice will eventually win. The universe is on the side of justice. And those who choose the way of nonviolence do so with deep faith that justice will eventually win. Friends, this is exactly what we see during Holy Week, which begins today. This is the week we Christians tell our biggest story, days and days of storytelling. And stories matter. They shape us as individuals and as a community. We tell stories to make sense of what happens to us and what happens around us. So let's begin the story with the version of Palm Sunday that we find in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 21. It's page 1531 if you're using the Bible in your pews. Matthew chapter 21, starting right at the beginning. Page 1531, if you're using the Bibles that are in your pews. So let us listen now in the reading of Scripture for the Word and the Wisdom of God. And heads up, you're going to need your palms. 
As they approached Jerusalem, they being Jesus and his disciples, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say the Lord needs them, and that person will send them right away. That works. This took place to fulfill what the prophet spoke. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowd answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove away all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. That's another quotation from the Old Testament. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never heard the phrase from the lips of children and infants, you, O Lord, have called forth your praise? It's a quote from the Psalms. And he left them, and he went out of the city to the town of Bethany, where he spent the night. These are the words of God for all people. Thanks be to God. What a story. Maybe you have heard this story dozens of times, or maybe you've never heard it. Some year, we're going to pick the whole thing apart, and I'm going to tell you about all the Old Testament references and the cultural cues, because you know I love to do that, but that is not our task for today. I will restrain myself. Today, at the beginning of Holy Week, what you most need to know about this story is that this is Jesus provoking everything that happens next. He is an innocent yet willing victim, and none of this comes as a surprise to him. I think he knew what was going to happen. Maybe not every minute detail, but Jesus knows the way of the world well enough to know how his actions would provoke the state and the church. During this holy week, the city is a powder keg and Jesus is the spark, and I think he knows it. I think he does this on purpose. He provokes the state by stirring up all these ideas of kingship and salvation and victory during Passover, 
when the Jews are celebrating their liberation from the Egyptian Empire. So the Roman Empire that's in charge right now is sure to crush any sign of revolt among the people, especially during this celebration. Jesus provokes this. And he provokes the church. He goes through the city, straight to the temple, and he messes with the system of sacrifice. Notice that in this version of the story, Jesus does not just drive out the sellers. In Matthew's version, he drives out the buyers too. I don't think this is presented as a justice issue. I think this is Jesus attacking the system that says violence is required to appease God. Because he drives out the sellers and the buyers. Now that's not a new idea. The Old Testament prophets said that God does not want sacrifice, but does want us to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. Jesus messes with the system that says, it doesn't matter how you live, just come here and do the religious things and you'll be fine. We cannot do whatever we want and then come to church and expect to get right with God and then go back and do whatever we want. Jesus attacks that way of thinking. I think Jesus knows exactly what he is doing when he issues these very public and dramatic challenges to the status quo. And when he challenges them, he paints a big old target right on his back. So why in the world would he do that? On purpose? It is because ultimately Jesus believes in peace and justice. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Jesus knows that God is bending the universe toward justice and that Jesus is laying down his life is part of that plan. The system of this world, both the state and the church, is built on the belief that the way to defeat something, the way to change something, is to attack it. If you want something to be different, you use the power of force to make that happen, right? That's how it works. You use some kind of violence. You overcome the thing in the same manner that it's doing already, right? Someone yells, you yell louder. Someone hits, you hit harder. Someone's nasty, you're nastier, right? Bigger weapons, bigger platforms. You use some kind of violence. But what Jesus shows us throughout this Holy Week is that that doesn't actually work. Not for the long term. We cannot defeat the system by attacking it. We cannot overcome a violent system by being violent. You might remember a quote I shared with you several weeks ago from Audre Lorde. She says, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us to temporarily beat him at his own game, 
but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. You cannot use violence to stop violence for the long term. Jesus shows us that the way to bring about genuine change is not to attack, but to submit. It is actually nonviolence that overcomes violence. Because when the system is violent against nonviolent resistors, everyone sees how morally corrupt the system is. Do you remember a few weeks ago when we looked at the pictures of people of color and some white folks too having fire hoses and dogs used on them? Who looks terrible in that situation? The authorities, the system. When the system uses violence against nonviolent resistors, everyone sees how morally corrupt the system is. When you refuse to use violence against violence, you refuse to play by the system's rules. And in a very important way, you are then free from the system's control because you're not playing by the system's rules. Now, as we will see during Holy Week, that kind of nonviolence, that kind of nonviolent resistance through submitting might kill you. Yet even aside from what happens after Jesus' crucifixion, come back next Sunday, consider the power of the death of an innocent person, a person who's not Jesus. Remember the examples of Dr. King, of Oscar Romero in Central America, of Gandhi. Jesus insists all the way through the Gospels that God can accomplish more with our willing sacrifice than we can accomplish by trying to protect ourselves. God can accomplish more with our willing sacrifice than we can accomplish by trying to protect ourselves. But that's a hard word to hear, isn't it? To so trust that the universe is on the side of justice that you are willing to put yourself on the line for it? To so trust that justice will eventually win that you are more ready to die than to commit injustice yourself? That takes courage. And we certainly cannot do it alone. And thanks be to God, we don't have to. To live as a Christian is to be in community. We become the people we want to be by doing it together, as part of the same church, as members of the same body, as the New Testament says. And this morning, we have seven people who have decided that Zion is the place where they find the companions they want for this journey. Becoming a member of this church is not like becoming a member of a club. It's like becoming a member of a family. And when a family gets a new member, like a new baby especially, or someone who marries in, that new member does not just assimilate to the family's way of doing things. The family actually changes because of the new member. So while our new members today will learn some of our family's traditions, we will also be changed by these new members. 
We welcome their different perspectives. We will listen to their wisdom. And we will grow and we will change because of their gifts. Church membership is not about who is in and who is out. It's about who wants to be in a relationship. In church, we are invited to share life with people who are different from us theologically, politically, racially, economically, sexually. And when we choose to be together, even though we disagree, we all grow in grace and love and humility. Church membership, committing to one another, is how we manage the tension between community and individuality. We don't allow ourselves to be absorbed and used up by other people. We don't do that. But we do make ourselves available to others, remembering that our lives are about so much more than just our own comfort and safety and power. This is the beautiful invitation of church membership.